Listener production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Monday, August 16. I'm Tom Tilley. Now, as you would know, Australia was the envy of the world when it came to managing the pandemic, but a slow vaccine rollout and Delta has clearly changed the game. The Sydney outbreak, with almost 8,000 cases, has thrown New South Wales and at times the other states into absolute chaos. The Delta variant's a big factor, but as the now seven weeks of lockdown has worn on, the case numbers show that the measures that were effective in many parts of Sydney have not worked in others. So in today's briefing, what's happened in Western Sydney? Why have we struggled to get the case numbers under control? The family household composition is different in our area. We're quite large families, you know. Families could be eight members, sometimes nine members, sometimes six members. So when the virus gets into a household, it's unlikely that's going to miss any one of them. So we'll give you an insight into Western Sydney, which is the epicentre of the New South Wales COVID outbreak, which is disrupting so much of the state and also the country. That is our briefing. First, Annika Smethurst is here as we bring you today's other big stories. The Afghan government has collapsed as the Taliban declared victory on Sunday night, with the militant group entering the capital, Kabul, after the nation's president fled the country. I didn't expect this from the president that I knew. Somehow in my heart, in the back of my mind, I still want to believe that this is not true, that he left. And his close team left without informing the nation. Then, yes, it's a betrayal to the entire nation of Afghanistan. That's Afghan Education Minister Ranjina Hamidi speaking to the BBC. The Afghan government officials told international media overnight that the country's president, Ashraf Ghani, fled the country ahead of the Taliban advance and is currently in neighbouring Tajikistan. The Taliban has reportedly taken the presidential palace in the capital and there have been scenes of chaos and queues at banks and at the city's airport. Taliban spokesperson Sahail Shaheen told the BBC that the Taliban won't be seeking revenge on those working with the Afghan government and foreign forces. Next few days, we want a peaceful transfer. There is no revenge on all those who are working with the Kabul administration or with the foreign forces. The US and other nations, including Australia, have sent extra troops to help evacuate embassy staff throughout Sunday and overnight and also help those people that assisted Australian troops while we were there. Yeah, this is a crazy situation and it's moving so fast. It's obviously devastating and frightening for the people of Afghanistan. Well, that's the people who don't support the Taliban which will be millions. Also devastating for the Australian soldiers who risked and sacrificed their lives trying to build stability there and training a big Afghan national army, supposedly 180,000 strong, who appear to have capitulated within just a few months of Joe Biden announcing the US and allies were pulling out. Yeah, it comes 20 years after the Taliban were removed. But so many countries, Tom, have failed there. The British invaded in the 1830s and failed. The Russians in the 1980s. And now this US-led invasion has failed also. It seems to be a country that's fiercely independent. Well, yeah, and people are comparing this to what happened in Vietnam in the 70s when we had to pull out there as well. So this, this history goes way back. The death toll from Haiti's earthquake has risen to 724, with authorities scrambling to find more survivors as a tropical storm approaches the island. It was a 7.2 magnitude earthquake which struck the Caribbean nation on Saturday. It was actually a similar strength to the earthquake that killed 200,000 people in 2010, 
but this one hit a less populated area. The US National Hurricane Centre is warning that Tropical Storm Grace could bring heavy rainfall and flash flooding to the island where rescuers are trying to recover more survivors from that weekend disaster, Tom. Young people in Sydney's COVID hotspots will be prioritised in the rollout of one million extra Pfizer doses purchased from Poland. The one million doses will be targeted to Australians aged 20 to 39 years of age. 530,000 of these doses will be prioritised for express delivery to the 12 city local government areas where the COVID-19 outbreak continues to grow. Prime Minister Scott Morrison speaking there yesterday. The first of the new doses actually arrived from Poland overnight and more are expected to arrive later this week. The remaining 470,000 doses will go to other states and territories. Yeah, great we could get some extra doses out of Poland, but disappointing we haven't been able to get any extra doses out of our best friends, America. Thanks, Joe Biden. What do you make of that, Annika? Uh, I think they've got their own little crisis at the moment. Look, Australia, we cannot forget, has actually ordered 40 million doses of Pfizer. Uh, it's just been delayed a little bit. We are getting more in September, and of course, that'll ramp up to the end of the year. So the extra million we're getting from Poland is on top of the 40 million doses we've already locked in. And it looks like another week of lockdown for those of us in Melbourne. I don't know what our position will be on Thursday, but these are not good signs. Dan Andrews there. Four of the 25 new cases yesterday were mystery cases and the state recorded four mystery cases on Friday, uh, eight on Saturday. So not looking good. It was due to end on Thursday night after already being extended by seven days last week. How do you see this playing out, Annika? Yeah, I think we're destined to be in it for at least another week. Look, I think the, what people hate down here is the lack of certainty. We mm. just sort of get these uh, six days after we're into the first one, we get an announcement saying it's going to go for a few more days longer. So you can't plan holidays, you can't plan weddings, all those people trying to live their lives. The case numbers are low, though. We had 25 new cases on Sunday. 13, about half, were infectious in the community. So they seem to be, as Dan Andrews says, running alongside of it. They just can't get out in front of it. And until they do, I think we're stuck in lockdown. Which means that basically you guys are living under the same restrictions we are in Sydney, but with dramatically lower case numbers. Does that frustrate people? Yeah, I think um, a lot of Melburnians feel that it's the best way. They look at Sydney and don't see it um, as the ideal scenario. And there still is hope that we can drive those numbers down here. It's not about getting down to zero. It's about getting down to zero infectious in the community. And when you've got about half of those people in that situation, there is a little bit of hope. But what frustrates a lot of people, including me, is that you could pop out of it for a few weeks and then the moment a number of cases, you're mm. back into lockdown, which makes it pretty difficult if you're um, going to try and book a holiday or anything in the you know coming months as it starts to warm up. So the long-term certainty really isn't there. Well, yeah, speaking of New South Wales, it's been a crazy 72 hours. On Friday, the Premier Gladys Berejiklian was reportedly pushing back on calls for greater restrictions and police powers and then um, changed her mind late Friday night, which caught out some of the Saturday papers. Um, then on Saturday at their 11 o'clock press conference, it was 466 new cases, which is the biggest so far in this outbreak. And they also announced they would be ramping up the, the greater restrictions for the rest of Sydney. Uh, and then a few hours after the press conference, they announced via Twitter and a media release that the rest of the state 
was going into a one-week lockdown. Yeah, those new restrictions kicked in at midnight and they take the city a step closer to Melbourne's hard lockdown as we were flagging there. So that's going from a 10-kilometre radius where you can leave your home for exercise and groceries down to a 5-kilometre radius. Tightening that singles bubble, you actually have to register who your single is and, of course, increase fines. Yeah, it's expected there'll be a big policing blitz over the next few days with those increased powers. And as you're about to hear in our briefing topic, still, the vast bulk of the case numbers are coming from those Western Sydney local government areas that actually went into a tougher lockdown a month ago now. Initially, it was just three LGAs. Now there are 12 LGAs in a harder lockdown. They're not even allowed to leave their houses for exercises. So before we get into the briefing, just a quick update on where those numbers are up to. The LGA of Cumberland um, actually got over 80 daily cases on Saturday. Uh, Numbers are slowly going up there. Blacktown uh, doesn't look good. In the last week, it's gone from around 20 a day up to 60 per day for the last three days. Penrith trending upwards at around 50 a day over the weekend. Cumberland gradually increasing at around 50 cases a day. Canterbury-Brankstown has trended flat at around 60 cases a day. Fairfield um, has gone down a little bit at 20 a day. So those numbers still going up despite weeks of harder lockdowns. So in this briefing, Jan Fran will join us as we find out why. And of course, regional New South Wales, Tom, is under strict lockdown or strict restrictions now, unlike regional Victoria, which is living a lot more freely than the rest of the country. Hi, it's Jan Fran here. In this briefing, we're going to take a look at why weeks of lockdown have struggled to bring down COVID numbers in Western Sydney. There's been a major police operation across the southwestern suburbs of Sydney. Liverpool, Fairfield, Canterbury, Bankstown. Now subject to tough restrictions. There are other communities who don't seem to think that it's necessary to comply with the law. 300 military personnel will be brought in. Mate, it's getting ridiculous. Government will only consider lifting the lockdown once there are no or very few new cases. So the hardest hit area of Western Sydney has been Canterbury-Bankstown, which is where you grew up, Jen, and your family is still there. What's it been like for you watching this unfold? Principally, I'm worried about my parents. They're old, they've got their routines, they like to go to the shops and buy essential goods and services. I'm also worried about like family potentially losing income. I know so many people who can't work from home. They're tradies, they work in construction, they work in service industries. They need to be out there. It's been sort of just upsetting watching it all unfold and not really being able to do anything about it, basically. Yeah, well, there's 12 local government areas there living under tighter restrictions now than the rest of Sydney. Um, They've got 5K limits on exercise and grocery shopping compared to 10 in other parts of the city. There's a tighter list on who can leave home to go to work. Construction workers can only work outside their local government area if they're fully vaccinated or have one dose and a test. And there's also tighter mask restrictions outdoors. Yeah, so there's a lot of restrictions for people in those particular LGAs to be under, and I imagine that probably wouldn't contribute to a very nice vibe at the moment. Let's get a perspective from within the community. Bashar Hanna, he's a long-time Fairfield resident. He's also the president of the Australian Mesopotamian Cultural Association. So Mesopotamia is the region that runs through northern Iraq, Syria and parts of Turkey. Bit of a history lesson there. Bashar, why do you think the measures have struggled to stop the spread? 
Well, to be honest, I live in Fairfield, and I know that the numbers in, in Fairfield are slightly declining. Mm. But in, regardless, at the beginning when it was spreading so much, because the family household composition is different in our area, we're quite large families, you know. Families could be eight members, sometimes nine members, sometimes six members. So when the virus gets into a household, it's unlikely that's going to miss any one of them. Bashar, when you look at the numbers, particularly with um, Western Sydney as a whole, and I know that Western Sydney, I, I grew up in Bankstown. I know it's a, it's not all the same. Bankstown is very different to Penrith and very different to Liverpool and very different to Fairfield. But there does seem to be a situation where the numbers are staying stubbornly high across this particular area. What do you think needs to happen to bring those numbers down? What do you think is going to change that? We all know now the only solution for this problem is the vaccination. The vaccination will provide protection for the people from the virus. We keep emphasizing, you know, to reduce the contact with others. I know the families in, in our area in Western Sydney are really, really like close to each other. Extended families are close to each other. They always like to check on each other to make sure that they're good. But in this situation, we really need to consider to stay away and just use this social media or phone contact, try not to deliver food you know, to our family members as much as we can because the situation now needs massive attention from everybody from the community. You're in touch with the community there. What have they been telling you in terms of the lockdown in the last few weeks? What, what have you been hearing from them? What I can hear and what I can feel, there is a... Um, there's a problem with the emotional well-being of the community at the moment. I know they are waiting and they are on the hope that things might get better by the end of this month. But if this is, didn't happen, it might cause an extra pressure on them psychologically. We know that the choices are very limited. Like the lockdown is to keep everybody safe. But don't forget there is financial difficulties can be caused by this. The youth now, youth are losing their passion actually because it's becoming too long. And you know, youth are outgoing. They like to go and mix and, you know, share ideas with people. They go out partying, but this is not happening. And that's also causing problem within the family as well. And many things are raising up. As far as the lockdown is going to continue, we're going to see a lot of issues in regards to the family relations and also the well-being issue. So that was Bashar Hanna in Fairfield. Um, let's move beyond the personal experiences to a more research-based approach. Professor Ben Harris-Rojas is an associate professor in community health at New South Wales Uni. He actually lives in the LJ of Cumberland. So that's an area just to the south of Parramatta. Ben, before we get to the question of why the restrictions have struggled to make an impact in those areas, give us more of a lay of the land compared to other parts of Sydney, compared to other parts of Australia, What's unique about this area of Sydney? So these parts of Sydney are quite multicultural, dynamic parts of the country. Uh, One of the things that I don't think a lot of people realise is that one in 10 people in all of Australia live in Western Sydney. Mm. So we're talking about a big chunk of the overall population of the country, people coming from a range of different countries. And the LGAs that people have been talking about most in relation to this outbreak, you're talking about most houses, up to 60% of houses, speaking a language other than English at home, quite a diverse array of migrant communities. So lots of um, Assyrian people, lots of Arabic speaking communities, lots of people from Vietnam and other countries. So it's a bit of a 
cultural melting pot and it's realized i guess some of those the dream of of multiculturalism that australia's had but also it's an area where people probably are a bit harder up on a lot of measures of disadvantage it features more highly and not just you know uh, in terms of income or household earning. It's also things like the physical environment. There tends to be less access to green space. You know, there's things like the urban heat island effect. You know, it's hotter in Western Sydney. So you're talking about an area that's diverse, pretty dynamic, but also people have to travel for work as well. Mm-hmm. A much smaller share of the jobs across all of Sydney are within striking distance of the Western suburbs. So you're talking about people who are travelling for work, coming from different parts of of the world. It's part of what makes Western Sydney interesting. It's why I like being here, but also it's different to other parts of Sydney and perhaps different to other parts of the country as well. Ben, Sydney's COVID outbreak started in the eastern suburbs. It was brought under control there. It moved west. It's been weeks now and there have been several LGAs in the southwest and and west of Sydney that have been under tougher restrictions than the rest of the city. And yet those numbers seem not to be going down, remaining stubbornly high. Why is that? What's going on? A lot of it, I think we have to do put down to, if we compare it to other outbreaks in other cities, you know, Delta is a bit different. We're hearing that, but it actually is. It's And it's hard to get that transmission rate lower. What's happened is that in the Southwest, it's gotten into areas where there's larger family groups, people who are travelling for work, but also the work that they're doing in aged care, healthcare, transport, manufacturing, about double in the southwest as a rate of the population compared to other parts of Sydney. So they're the jobs that people have to travel for, jobs that expose people more to COVID and so on. So that's how it's sort of initially spread. What we're finding is that it's really going through not just a single household, but groups of households as well. There is some degree of of non-compliance with the rules, like that's part of the story. But also, you know, you've got to be real about Western Sydney's been, I guess, demonised a bit in some of our, uh, in the portrayals of it. Police presence is a real thing here. So people don't have a lot of trust in government necessarily, and certainly not in a policing response. So I think, you know, people will often do what they can to sort of hustle and get around the rules. So I think those factors are all sort of combining to make it much bigger challenge in Western Sydney than it has been perhaps in the eastern suburbs where it started. Yeah, Jan and I were having an interesting conversation earlier about during this pandemic how it's been hard for anyone who's been blamed for an outbreak and there's been a lot of stigma, outrage in the media and and no one wants to be that person or that group of people. But what often separates these different groups of people who may be blamed at some point is the the legacy of what's come before. And it sounds like from what you're saying there that people in Western Sydney pre-pandemic had built up a distrust of police, felt that they were unfairly targeted, and that's actually played a role here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, police have got a much more visible presence here than in other parts of Sydney. When I was working out at Liverpool, even, you know, you'd get your ticket checked on the train at least three times a week when I worked in the central business district, maybe three times a year. So there's a sense of policing being around the police helicopters over my house, you know, at the moment, certainly several times a day. So there's a heavy police presence, but it's also got a little bit of the flavour of not being here to help. So people don't feel a lot of trust for police necessarily. Some of that might be fair, some might be unfair. 
But also the other thing that's worth keeping in mind is that we're talking about people and populations who have often migrated as asylum seekers or refugees. So they've got big histories as communities about histories of trauma, poor treatment by governments, you know, not just here, but overseas. So what happens now? What does the government do in a circumstance like this? Because you've outlined a number of factors, which include distrust of police, people having to work and be mobile. What does the government do now in these particular areas to bring down those rates of COVID? Because what they've been doing so far does not seem to be working. So I guess what we've got to do is is probably a few things. One is that there needs to be better communication about the support that is available. People are really worried about going and getting tested, not so much solely for the fact that they might have COVID, but for, for the implications for their households. Everyone has to stay home and isolate. There is still a perception that there isn't help available. So I think, you know, much more clear, simple messaging about that point in particular is really important. But what I've found actually in discussions with people, people from Arabic speaking backgrounds and so on, people aren't stupid. You know, they know what COVID is, they've got concerns, but what they want is to be able to interrogate, have a bit of a two-way discussion about that. So what needs to be happening is a much more engagement with and through trusted groups. That includes some of the doctors who speak those languages, who really are very trusted voices in those communities, going out and explaining and having a discussion about COVID and concerns. And a lot of these groups have been doing that and organising it themselves, but they need backup and that's what's needed. And really, we need to see more of that. We need to start seeing at the, I think, the daily press conferences recently in New South Wales. We've started to see different faces and different voices apart from police. What we need is also some of the leaders from those communities to be talking about what the rest of Sydney can be doing to support them. Localised vaccine champions, people who can be having those discussions, who are already known and trusted by a lot of the people in those areas, if we're going to get in front of this. So that was Professor Ben Harris-Rojas from New South Wales Uni. I'm speaking to us from the LJ of Cumberland. What do you make of his analysis, Jan? You know what the one thing I took away from that was? The strategy has to shift. It's week eight of lockdown. What the government has been doing in those areas clearly isn't working or isn't working fast enough. I'll say that. There needs to be a shift in strategy in terms of how they reach people in those particular suburbs. So what are you thinking? Is it about communication? Is it about stricter enforcement? What do you what do you imagine? I think Ben had it absolutely right when he talked about leaders within the communities and going through trusted leaders who are going to give people as much information as possible in a way that they can understand and relate to. Listener.